Samuel Prime recounts in his experience of God's grace in a little book he wrote called The Power of Prayer, The New York Revival of 1858. In it, Prime tells or retells of God's amazing work through a small prayer meeting that he had the privilege of leading. As he tells the story, he recounts no emotional appeals, no sensational preaching, which was very popular during his day. None of these things were the means God used to stir revival in the church, but rather a simple prayer meeting. They would gather each day during the working hours of the day. This was Monday through Friday. They would gather each day at noon to sing a hymn. They would give a few requests. Prayers would be made. And then the meeting would end promptly at 1 p.m. There's a steady rhythm in the book as you read of prayers made, prayer requests, Then prayers answered. Prayers made and prayers answered. All of this sort of repetition in the book is quite striking. It seems as if this is really not that novel at all. God used the ordinary prayers of these saints to break out a tremendous revival in New York City in 1858, where thousands began flooding into churches. All because of a few that would gather to pray. In fact, their prayer meeting began to grow so large that they quickly outgrew the space. One author has written, Prayer is the ordinary means God uses to accomplish supernatural ends. This is why prayer is so important. It is the means God has given to His church that we might participate in His sovereign purposes on earth. God has invited us to be a part of His work through prayer. We participate with God when we pray. And this is why, as Christians, we want to give so much time and attention to praying. This is why in our gatherings we spend so much time praying. It's sad how many modern evangelical Christians go an entire worship service having only prayed before the preacher preaches. How often in our own lives we go days without intentionally praying. I am guilty of this just as much as you are. We so often neglect prayer. But we know the Bible teaches us that prayer is God's ordinary means to do extraordinary things in our lives. Well, in Ephesians, Paul prays Two of the greatest prayers, perhaps in all of the Bible. Two grand prayers where he invites the congregation to pray for him 
as he prays for them. These prayers in Ephesians really tend to be the the defining points in the letter themselves. Where God uses these prayers to inform the congregation and to teach the congregation, but also to be exactly what they are. Prayer. Prayers given on their behalf. In this letter, Paul has outlined our glorious call in Christ. He has displayed in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Paul spends at length describing what God has done in Christ as he has called a particular people to salvation. Then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will turn to kind of working that call out in the Christian life together. In Paul's impressive opening, in verses 3 through 14, which we spent a number of weeks studying, in the original language there, Paul, in 200 words, stretches together a long, long sentence. Truly caught up, if you will, in the grandeur and the greatness of God in Christ. As he calls sinners to himself. Paul outlines this grand picture of the blessed life in Christ. The mystery of the gospel that has been revealed to the elect. And Paul desired for them to fully grasp all that God had done for them in Christ. And so he turns to pray Here in verses 15 through 23, praying that God would fully reveal himself by his spirit, that they might know him even better. In the preceding text over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this prayer that Paul prays. And and I just want to outline very briefly for you what he does. He turns from his eulogy, his prayer or his praise in verses 3 through 14. He turns as he reflects on all of these great things to thanksgiving and to prayer. He is thankful for the work that God has been doing in the lives of the Ephesian church. And as he reflects on all that God is doing in them. He seems to burst out yet again. In praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Paul goes from a long 200 word sentence in verses 3 through 14 to yet another long sentence in verse 15 through 23. I demonstrate that all to, to, to show you how intentional he was under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so Paul outlines in the text before us. As he prays that they would know God's goodness. That's what we're going to consider this morning. That they would know God's goodness. Then in verse 18 he goes on to pray that they would know God's grace better. Oh they had received God's grace. They were, they were knowledgeable of God's grace and of his goodness. But Paul prayed that they would know it even deeper. Have a wider and deeper knowledge of God's grace. And then finally, in verses 19 through 20, Paul prays that they would know God's greatness. God's greatness. His prayer culminates with a sort of a reflection of God's supremacy in Christ. And how Christ reigns and rules over all. In short, Paul prays that the church would know God better. 
And that's our prayer this morning, that we would know him better. Friend, I invite you to turn, if you have not already, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 15. I will read through verse 17. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit or the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, that's what we want to think about this morning in our time. And I've summarized it in this way. Christians continually give thanks to God for his saving work and pray for one another so that they would grow in the knowledge of God's goodness. In other words, as Christians, we pray for one another. So my hope this morning is to really encourage us to see God's redemptive work in others, not merely ourselves. Paul has a very outward look in this prayer. He is reflecting And considering the work of God's grace in other Christians. And I think he outlines really a pattern for us to follow. An example to follow. Uh, Regularly Paul will say, follow me as I follow Christ. I think what Paul does here is exactly that. Model for us how to follow Christ. How to respond when God saves sinners and puts them in a church. Paul outlines, I think, a pattern to follow. And he gives us three responses. Three responses that every Christian should have to God's redemptive work in Christ. So, So as you gather this morning, how do you respond when God saves a neighbor next to you? How do you respond as you sit in the pew with another brother or sister in Christ? How do you respond to God's saving work? Well, I think Paul outlines for us really three responses. First, acknowledge God's redemptive work in other members. So as a church, we are to acknowledge, give recognition to God's redemptive work in others. Not merely ourselves. Secondly, we are to give thanks to God for his evident work in the lives of others, particularly in the congregation. And finally, we are to pray for the spiritual growth of others. Acknowledge, give thanks, and pray. Those are the three things we want to think about, the three responses to God's redemptive work. Well, first, look at me, look with me in verse 15. As Christians, we are to acknowledge God's redemptive work in other church members. Look at what Paul does in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul begins by saying, For this reason. For what reason? Well, what Paul is doing is he's pointing back 
to verses 3 through 14. He's tying his prayer of thanksgiving, his acknowledgement of their growth in Christ, to the, to the gospel work that he's just talked about. For this reason, because I know that you are elect, because I know that you are chosen for redemption, because I know this is true of you, and how does he know it's true of them? How does he know that they are saved? How does he know that God has eternally elected them from before the foundation of the world, that they might be holy and blameless? How does he know that? Look at verse 15. Because I have heard about your faith and love. As he reflects on what God had done in Christ, he looks forward to what he has done in the Ephesian church. So Paul is not talking about just mere theological points that are true, but that are true about the Ephesian church, the church he writes to. What he knew is true of the gospel has become evident in the lives of these early Christians. Imagine Paul is sitting in a cold Roman prison. And his soul is being warmed. As reports begin to flood in about the gospel work going on in the Lucian Valley and across Asia Minor. What was the reputation of these early Christians? It was their faith and their love. And brothers and sisters, these are what the Bible teaches us are the true marks of a genuine Christian. They have faith and love. How do we know that a sinner has been saved? How do we know that all these great things that we've heard about in verses 3 through 14, about election and redemption and salvation? Well, because it actually produces some evidence in our lives. What happened internally gets externalized. What's going on in our hearts begins to ooze out of us and show up. Namely, in our faith and in our love. Look at these two things that he highlights here in verse 15. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard about it. In other words, you have a reputation about you. The word on the street about you is your faith and your love. They were known for their faith. Now, now Paul here is not talking about the object of their faith. So oftentimes when we read our Bibles, when we say we have faith in the Lord Jesus, what we're saying is that uh, the Lord Jesus is the object of our faith. It's who we place our faith in. That's not the sense in which Paul is meaning here in this particular context. What Paul means, and and why I mean by context, I'll show you in a minute. What Paul is intending here is not so much the object of their faith, but rather the rule and reign of Christ for which the sphere of their faith takes place. In other words, remember Jesus taught his disciples that faith would come after regeneration. That faith proceeds from the work of the Spirit in their lives. And that's what Paul has just talked about in verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God generated in you the faith to believe. And the very fact that you have faith, saving faith, demonstrates the work of God in your life. Furthermore, Paul goes on to speak about the supremacy of Christ over all things. And so our faith that Paul speaks of here is the realm or sphere in which it operates. Paul is saying what he said to the church in Colossae. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Our faith operates within this worldview that Christ is Lord of all. This is similar to what you might have heard maybe if you're an older saint back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, when there was a movement in the church to stress that you not only uh, repent of your sins, but you make Jesus Lord of your life. You'll remember that, that terminology. John MacArthur made that popular with a book he wrote in the 70s about the Lordship of Christ. The sort of stressing the Lordship. Well, that's what Paul is emphasizing here. In other words, your faith operates under a recognition that Jesus is in charge. That he's Lord. What would that look like? What would have been obedience? How, How do you know that a believer is truly a believer? It's by their obedience. Jesus said it this way. You will know my disciples because they obey me. They actually do what I say. In other words, they demonstrate my lordship in their life. That's what MacArthur's point was. As he was just teaching good Bible verses like this one. That genuine Christians demonstrate they are saved by their obedience, by their faith, by their believing in Christ. But we see also in the text, they were not only known for their submission to Christ and his lordship. But look at verse 15 again. Uh, They were known for their love. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. They were known for their love. Not only was the church in Philadelphia known for their brotherly love, but so was the church in Ephesus. And as I just read, so was the church in Colossae. These churches throughout the Lucian Valley and and across the the, the region were known for their love. And we're not surprised by this, are we? No, we're not surprised by this at all. For Jesus taught his disciples that this is how the world would know you. In John 13, 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people, not just Christians, will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Now, this love that that, that Paul speaks of here is not that hallmark love that we see played out in our culture today. Uh, A reciprocal love. I'll love you if you love me but rather a sacrificial love. No no greater love than this. Someone laid down his life for a friend. The love the Bible speaks about is that sacrificial love, the, the love that Jesus demonstrates. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That's not reciprocal love. 
Jesus didn't love us because we were going to love him or because we loved him. No, Jesus died in spite of that, while we were yet enemies of the cross. And so Christian love is sacrificial love. It's costly. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that that is costly. How many hours you pour into a brother or sister, discipling them, praying for them, encouraging them, all to see them walk away from the faith. Love comes at a cost. It's hard and difficult, but yet as Christians, we know that faith and love are the fruits of genuine saving faith. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, this text teaches us that one cannot demonstrate these evidences, faith and love, apart from the Spirit, apart from the work of God in, in their life. The, one, uh, the measure of one's salvation is the proportion of faith and love in their life. If you do not love and do not have faith, you are not saved. If they are not there, one cannot count any assurance of salvation. You might be a good person. You might do tremendously wonderful things in our community. Your children may speak well about you. How good of a father you are. How good of a mother you are. But apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, apart from turning from your sins and trusting in the righteousness of Christ, you are not saved. No. It's only by trusting in Christ that one has the true measure of faith and love. You know, so often we are so quick to notice when someone loses weight or when they've gained weight. We notice it. We see it. We comment about it. We notice when someone gets a new haircut. It's a new hairdo. Maybe get some color added to it. We notice it. We make comments about it. We notice the new tattoos, the new clothes. We notice these things. We acknowledge them. Why? Well, because our eyes have been trained to notice them. We pick them up. Whoa, you look different. We haven't seen that friend in a while and they've lost weight. We notice it. We're like, whoa, lost some weight. How often do we notice faith and love in other Christians? So often we are so slow to acknowledge spiritual work that God is doing. Primarily because our eyes, our spiritual eyes, are not trained to recognize it. We don't notice it. How would Paul have known? More than that, how would the person who told Paul about the faith and love of these Christians. So I want you to kind of, kind of back up with me. All right, so Paul heard this. He heard it from somebody. Well, how would that person, whoever he or she was, have known to look for these things, namely faith and love, if they had not been taught by Paul to look for them? They were taught to look for them. They were trained to look for them they were, they were taught the Bible. <laughs> they were taught the scriptures where 
where we learn in the scriptures we've referred to that these are the evidences of a genuine saving faith. Paul had taught these early Christians to look for this kind of fruit, to notice it and to acknowledge it, to commend it. Brothers and sisters, what are we looking for in other members? Our eyes must be trained to look for these things. Do you acknowledge the grace of God in others? Do you just stop for a minute and think about how God is at work through the regular preaching of his word and the regular intake of the Bible? How God is at work. Do you take time to notice how God is working to grow Christians in this congregation? In this congregation. I don't mean like some other congregation. I mean the among you. Do you recognize and acknowledge the spiritual fruit in others? Brothers and sisters, let us learn to notice it. We're so often inwardly focused when we gather, but, but if we would just pause and listen to how God is at work in one another. I'm so encouraged when I see the fruit of God in you. Brother Sean this morning, how his prayers have grown deeper over the, the months as he's stepped out in faith, even leading and teaching a Sunday school class. I'm so encouraged to see our, our, our brother and sister Bonnie and, and Nathan working tirelessly to care for their family in the midst of a difficult situation, all for God's glory. That's growth. And there's countless stories I could tell about how I hear in your prayers and the way you speak to your spouse and the things you talk about. That is evident of spiritual growth. It shouldn't just be me. No, Paul is writing to the church, not to the pastors. Brothers and sisters. Let us take time. We don't do this to flatter or to puff up. We do it to encourage, to build up. Let's build one another up, acknowledging, acknowledging God's grace in our lives. Brothers and sisters, I think also in verse 15, it's a reminder to us what evident evidence we're looking for. We're not looking for givers. We'll take your money. We're not looking for good people. We're looking for people that demonstrate faith and love. When we bring in new members as a congregation, we want to say and ask that question. Is there evident faith and love in their life? Do they demonstrate saving faith? Do they demonstrate the rule of Christ in their life through their obedience? Are they known for their love? Brother, sister, are you known for your love? I want to point out one other thing before we move on in verse 15. Look with me again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In the Greek language, that word all means all. Everyone. Could that be said of you? You love all the saints? You love everyone here? Do we love them all? 
No, we tend to love the lovable, right? In our flesh, we love those who are easy to love. And there, there's some sheep that are easy to love. There's some sheep that are not so easy to love. Is there someone that gets under your skin that you struggle to love? Brothers and sisters, we're called to love all the saints. And that's a measure of our genuine saving faith. And perhaps you're struggling with assurance this morning because you've struggled to love everyone. And let me commend you this morning to love all the saints. Are you known for your faith and love? Let us grow. Paul acknowledges the evident work of God's grace in the lives of these Ephesians. And as Christians, we respond to God's redemptive work by acknowledging God is at work. God is at work. Look around you. God is at work. And this naturally leads us to our second point in verse 16, that we are to give thanks to God's evident work. We're not merely to acknowledge it. Look, God is at work. But we are to acknowledge who is the source of such work, God himself. Look at verse 16. As Paul reflected upon the evident work of God in the life of the church, what did he do but burst out in thanksgiving in verse 16? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. We see here that Paul was compelled and continual in his thanksgiving. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. In other words, Paul says, I can't stop to do it. He uses like this negative to emphasize the positive. In other words, I can't stop doing it. I'm compelled to give thanks for you. It was as if as he heard the news, it bubbled up inside of him in such a way that he was compelled to do it. It's like he couldn't help himself. In my house... I'm not allowed to have Oreos. I'm not allowed to buy them for many reasons. But one is I can't help myself. Like once it's open, like you just gotta completely eat the whole thing in one setting. You just can't stop. I can't stop it. Many of you will remember years ago, Lay Potato Chips had a had their slogan, I bet you can't have just one. Right? And probably many here today who couldn't, right? You're like down in the bottom of the bag. You're like, wow, that went quick. (laughs) As Paul reflected on what God was doing in the church, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't stop himself. He was compelled to give thanks. But not only was he compelled to give thanks, he was continual in his Thanksgiving. Notice what he says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul had a planned prayer life. Paul was intentional about the way he went about prayer. The text does not mean that Paul just sort of walked through life continually praying. Sometimes when we read Paul and he says, I pray without ceasing, we get this idea that Paul just kind of wandered around praying all day. No, that's not the meaning of that. What Paul means is that I am intentional and I plan out my prayer life. 
So that as I daily rise or as I I rest my eyes at night, I am remembering you. I'm intentionally thinking about you. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge and wisdom of God. He goes on in in other places, like in Romans 1, where, where Paul says this, that I constantly mention you in prayer. Or when he wrote Timothy, in 2 Timothy, I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. When I constantly remember you in prayers night and day. Paul had an intentional prayer life, planned prayer life, where he would reflect on what God was doing in the lives of others. You know, often we give thanks for what we value. We give thanks to God for what we treasure. As we think about what we give thanks for, I think it reveals a bit of our own hearts, both good and bad. Because there's some things we value and treasure which God does not value and treasure. But as we think about giving thanks for others, that is acknowledging God's grace in their life and then actually praying, God, thank you for your evident work in Sean's life. I see it, it's tremendous, and it gives me hope that this church is not going to close its doors because you're raising up gospel, godly-minded people. Thanking God for evident work in the midst of a drought. We can thank God for, for rain, right? Now, we're not thanking God for rain today because we definitely are not in a drought. But when there's spiritual drought, when there's a spiritual famine going on, we give thanks when God is evidently at work because it reminds us God's still here. God is still at work. But I wonder as Christians, could it be that we don't give thanks because we're bitter that God is growing others and not us? Is it spiritual pride that leads us to be silent? Brothers and sisters, let us learn to be thankful for others. To demonstrate genuine concern in our prayer life. One of the tools that we've given you as a congregation is our membership directory. One of the ways I commend you this morning to to obey this passage is by planning to pray for other members daily. So today, for example, is the what? The 24th day of the month. Well, in our members directory, you will go to a certain page on the 24th day and you will pray for those members. Now, now I know many of you are like, I don't know anyone on that page. Praise God. Now you have something to do this week. Uh, Get to know the people on that page. You, You see their faces, their pictures are there. Now you know who they are. Let me commend you to pray for one another and And we've even helped you. We've given you prayers to pray for individuals. Pray that they would commend the gospel in their life. Pray that God would produce fruit in them. Even if you don't know them, you can pray for them. So let me commend you to 
to add that to your life and the daily rhythm of your life. He had a planned prayer life. Do you? Do you set aside time where you can just stop talking and start reflecting? You see, it wasn't Paul going to God with a list of prayers. It was Paul stopping and listening to the reports that were given to him about the evident fruit in the lives of others that compelled him to go into his prayer closet. Could it be that so many of us have a dry, barren prayer life? Because we don't stop and think and reflect about God's work in our lives. Not only our life, but in the lives of others. Let us strive to give thanks. Let's develop relationships. I think one of the other implicit points here is that Paul had a relationship so that he could give thanks. If you have no one to give thanks for today, well, let me just commend you to, to meeting some people in this congregation. Like, talk to them. Get to know them. Ask them, how can I pray for you? Get to know them so that you have ways to pray for one another. Paul continually gave thanks to God. All throughout uh, Pauline literature, all throughout Pauline scripture, you see him constantly giving thanks, beginning all of his letters with some form of thanksgiving. And I've often said as Christians, we must be the most thankful people in all the world. We must not stop giving thanks, but continually opening our mouths and giving God glory. Well, this leads to our to a third response. It really takes up the rest of it. Paul shifts from thanksgiving to prayer. Now, thanksgiving is a form of prayer, but but here Paul shifts from thanksgiving to petitionary prayer. uh, What we call the prayer of petition in our order of service, where he asks God something. This tends to be the one form of prayer that we're most familiar with, uh, asking God for things. Um, And that's okay. We should ask God for things. But we see here that Paul prays for spiritual growth in other Christians. In other words, Paul doesn't merely pray for himself or his own missionary work. He'll do that later in chapter 6. But here, he is teaching the church how to pray for other Christians. Well, notice with me here in verse 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers... That, the the content of my prayer is this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul prays to the Father for the Spirit with the goal of spiritual growth. First, notice with me that he appeals to the Father. This is a particular theme in this letter. He is developing and... uh, Encouraging us to develop our own theology of God being the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the father of glory. Now, I like the CSB and the way it translates this text when it translates it as a glorious father. That seems to be a better understanding. In other words, what he's saying is, is that the father is glorious, not merely You know, the one who runs heaven. Now, a lot of times when we read the father of glory, we kind of think, oh, God's in heaven. He's kind of the the chief. He's the boss of heaven. Things like that. That's not really necessarily Paul's point here. Paul's point seems to be to attribute the father with a particular characteristic, which is his glory. And so he calls out to the glorious father, as he will do in his second prayer in chapter three and verse 14. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, what he is doing is he's appealing to the one whose purpose has been worked out in the lives of the church. You remember back up in chapter uh, in chapter one, in verses three through four, Paul began his eulogy, his praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing is he's appealing to the source of all spiritual blessing. He's calling out to the Father. The one who's given spiritual life is the one who sustains spiritual life. The one who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. That's what he's doing. He's saying he's appealing to the one who began it to sustain it. And as Christians, that's what we do. The spiritual growth in our lives is produced It comes from, it's sourced by the Father who began the work. That's a sense of a promise for us this morning that God who began the work will complete the work. God doesn't start something and then kind of just leave it unfinished. He completes every task that he begins. Well, Paul prays here in verse 17 for something specifically. Notice what he says. May give you, that the Father may give you what? The spirit of wisdom and of revelation In the knowledge of him. Now, some of y'all have different translations here. And you'll notice that some have the definite article, the, the spirit. Others might have a spirit um, or a spirit, the spirit. Which is it? Well, the context leads me to believe and why the ESV translators uh, led this way as well, as, as well as others, the NIV, the Holman Christian, others translations as well. Because the context here is that Paul is is reflecting on the promise of the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14, which then leads him to thanksgiving and prayer in verses 15 through 23. And he appeals to the very Spirit who began work, who created life. He, he prays that the Spirit would sustain life. It's the Spirit who gives wisdom and revelation. It's the Spirit who illumines our eyes. If you want to study that more, you can look at texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul teaches clearly that it's the Holy Spirit's work to open our eyes, that we had have you know, spiritual eyes to be able to see an unseen world. So as Christians, we appeal to the Spirit. We see this to be kind of a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Isaiah there prophesied that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, that is on on the Messiah, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. What Isaiah was prophesying about Christ then becomes true of us through our union with Christ. This is why Jesus would tell his disciples, hey, you know what's really good for you? Not for me to hang out here and kind of just kind of have a little hang time, but rather for me to leave and for the spirit to come because the spirit is going to give you eyes to see that which you cannot see. And that's what he's praying for here. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see and know God better. That's the goal in mind. The goal is that they would know God. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in this text is is then restated by that phrase, the knowledge of him, the knowledge of God. Paul prayed that they would know God better. That they would grow in their knowledge of God. And that that word know, right, is an old word. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. 
when Moses tells us that Adam knew Eve. It's a sort of intimate, deep knowledge. And this is what Paul was praying, that they would know God. They would have an intimate knowledge of God. And brothers and sisters, this is what we're praying for. That we would know God better. If we were to take a survey of many of the prayer requests that we give, and count those prayer requests, I would guarantee you that the number one prayer request would be for some physical need. There's nothing wrong with praying for physical needs. Nothing at all praying for that. The Bible demonstrates, models for us, praying for spiritual, I mean, for physical needs. But it definitely doesn't dominate the New Testament prayers. What we see these early Christians praying for is spiritual growth. I mean, Paul is in prison. He doesn't say like, hey, can you pray that, you know, I'd have a better meal tonight? No, no, I pray that this imperial guard that is watching over me night and day, that through the faithful sharing of the gospel, they would come to know Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to pray for. Paul often and regularly would pray for the spiritual needs of Christians. And brothers and sisters, what more should we be inclined to pray for than spiritual matters? I mean, At the end of the day, if someone is healed of their sickness, but yet is without Christ, are they really any better off? We should pray. We are spiritual people, and so let us give our time to praying for spiritual matters. And in this context, he is praying for knowledge. Brothers and sisters, we need prayer to know God better. We can't feel our way to God. The Holy Spirit must give us eyes to see. Brothers and sisters, prayer must be that sort of central part. We must pray with the goal to know him better. John Stott has said it this way. Knowledge is the ladder by which faith climbs higher. Shaky faith is from a lack of knowledge of who God is. The more we know God, the more our faith is strengthened. That's why you can see a brother or sister who's walked and knows God, face down cancer and not be afraid. It's not because they're some tremendously uh, pain, you know, adverse person. No, it's because they know who God is. They know his power and his greatness. Calvin would say it this way, whatever may be the height of our attainments, let them always be accompanied by the desire of something higher. In other words, as Christians, we are to grow. And that's the implicit point that Paul makes here in this text, is that Christians grow. Christians grow. We grow through the knowledge of God. Look, I I know a lot about the governor of Maryland, Governor Hogan. You may know a lot about him, too. I, I know where he was born. I know where he went to school. I know what he did before he went into office. But I don't know the governor of Maryland. Like, I don't know him. I just know about him. One time I got to meet then Vice President Joe Biden. Got to shake his hand and have a great conversation with him. He shared with me some things and I shared with him a few things. And and, uh, we, we shook hands and went our way. I know about him. He wouldn't say he knows me just because of that one interaction. 
And oftentimes when we think about the knowledge of God, that's what we have in mind. Just knowing a set of facts about God. But that's not biblical knowledge. The Bible talks about knowledge in an intimate way. To understand them intimately where we know him and he knows us. One of the ways that demonstrates that we're true believers is through our growth in the knowledge of God. Do you pray that, God would, that you would know God better? Is that a prayer on your prayer list? God, I pray that this year I would know you better. More than that, I pray that my brothers and sisters at Catonsville Baptist Church would know you better. I pray that we would grow in the knowledge of God. Do you read and study your Bible with that aim in mind? To know God better. Brother and sister, you're going to spend eternity with God. It stands to reason that you would know a little bit about him before you move in. We know him through his word. I commend to you J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If you want to just, how do I know God better? I should commend you to read that book. Because all J.I. Packer does in that book is say, hey, let me just open your Bible and let's get to know God better. One of the great preachers of modern English language was, of course, Charles Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon said this once. After preaching, I go back home many a time mourning that I cannot preach my master even as I know him. And what I know of him is very little compared with the matchlessness of his grace. Would that I know more of him and that I could tell it out better. One of the greatest preachers this world has ever heard and seen. I don't know God and I hope to know him better. Paul prayed that the Ephesian church would grow deeper in their knowledge of God in their lives. And as Christians, let me commend that for us as well. Let us pray for one another that we might know God better, might have a deeper and richer understanding of who he is. May as a congregation, we lift our hearts in dependency upon the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. May we give ourselves to depend upon him in prayer and crying out to him and praying for one another. In the Institutes, Calvin says this about prayer, that prayer is the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. Brothers and sisters, may we go to receive these rich benefits as we go before his throne of grace and cry out, not merely for ourselves, but praying for one another, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give you the glory today through Christ. We pray that you would grow our faith and love, that we would know you better as a congregation. Deepen our understanding of your grace. Give us, give us the spirit that we might grasp the heights of your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.